0: KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening where we continue our reflections into uh, the book of Revelation, and this evening is going to be about wrapping up our reflections into the letters to the seven churches. Now, before we get into the seven seals, I did want to capture the essence of what is behind these seven letters. Because really, when you look at them closely, There is that overarching theme of repentance and uh, this call we have to desire God because before anything else, God is desiring us. I mean, I doubt (laughs) that any Christian can read Christ's message to the churches that we have been talking about over the past week with an open heart and not experience some conviction of sin. While advice about how to respond to our Lord's correction is scattered throughout the messages, certainly the seventh message, the one we were talking about yesterday, addressed to the Church of Laodicea, is particularly helpful. Why? Because here we see the motive of Christ's stern words. He reproves those whom He loves. He reproves those whom He loves. I mean, how many of us run from the reproof, run from the correction, run from the admonishment. And yet, what our Lord reveals to us in this seventh letter, in this letter to the church of Laodicea, is, well, he actually reproves those whom he loves. So this is something that we have to be very present to. His desire, incredible as it may seem, is quite simply to be in a living relationship with us. He wants to come and drink with us, and us with him. As we were talking about yesterday, he wants to come into us, an especially powerful Eucharistic reference. He knows that despite our pretensions to the contrary, we do not have what we need. So he invites us to obtain from him everything. Again, as we were talking yesterday, the gold of tested faith. A garment of righteousness and the anointing of the Holy Spirit to enable us to see clearly. And so we have to enter into this call we have to be transformed in Him. And so I thought it would be helpful as we are now in wrap up mode to these letters to the seven churches to uh, carefully consider, in the end, what Jesus is after. And in the end, He is after our hearts that we might actually desire god as much as he desires us and so the first principle of our transformation in christ is well desire that deep yearning to put away the old man and put on the new cloth of christ that language that comes to us from galatians chapter 3 verse 27 ephesians chapter 4 verse 24 Colossians chapter 3 verse 10. Put on the new cloth of Christ. Become a new creation. Essentially, the desire to become something fundamentally different. But, as in all things in the spiritual life, we are to understand this within the context of grace, huh? That is, the grace of desire that God has put into our hearts to change. So, this first principle of desire has us reflecting into the importance of what? But God's invitation. We always have to remember that God is the one initiating. God is the one knocking on the door of our hearts. What is that great verse that comes to us from Revelation chapter 3 verse 10? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone who hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. We just have to open the door. We have to cooperate in his grace. Uh, incidentally, what does that word mean, cooperate? Well, the co is cum, right? With and operate is apparatus, to work, to labor, to toil. So, we work with Jesus. We work with the Holy Spirit. Here, I am made to think about the great commissioning. What does that word mean? co-mission, co again, cum, mission from the Latin missio, to be sent forth. We are sent forth with what? But the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus promises. So as we are sent forth with the gift of the Holy Spirit, we cooperate in his grace and we do so by and in a living relationship with Jesus Christ. Mindful that Jesus never forces, Jesus never coerces, imposes, He only proposes, invites. Love can only come from within, never without. You can never force love, because the moment you do that, it ceases to be love, right? Love is always free, so he invites us. He says, what? Come and see. There's that beautiful narrative that comes to us at the end of the first chapter of the Gospel of John, where after Philip has this encounter with our Lord, he goes to find Nathanael and he starts to tell Nathanael about this encounter he had with with this Jesus of Nazareth. What does he say? We have found him. We have found the fulfillment to to the law of Moses and to the prophets. And what does Nathanael say? What good comes from Nazareth? Right? And does Philip go on to explain more about how Jesus is the fulfillment to the law of Moses and and the fulfillment to the prophets? No, he simply says, come and see, huh? So the invitation leads to the encounter, and the encounter leads to new questions, which in God's grace and mercy will always lead to new beginnings. And these new beginnings will have its challenges But again, as we've already noted before, challenges exist to be overcome because all healthy challenges call us forth to be the best version of who God is calling us to be. We ought to hit the pause button here again to translate a word. The word invitation comes from the Latin invitatio, which means yes to summon someone, but at the same time to challenge them. So the word invitation best translates as a summoning, yes, but also a challenge. Because anytime you invite someone into a relationship, the very dynamic of that relationship is going to call out this great virtue of love. And loving always brings about a challenge. Certainly when it comes to that truest expression of love, to will the good of the other. You know, we talk about the spiritual life in very general terms, but we could say that really the spiritual life is synonymous with desire, synonymous with longing. In the words of Saint Teresa of Avila, synonymous with the wounded ache. You know that ache you feel when you are not with your beloved and all you desires to be with him or her, how it kind of just overwhelms you existentially. The whole of the spiritual life is about desire, and this desire is something given to us by God. Our life's journey is about the quest to desire God as much as God desires us. An endless and adventurous quest. Think about the things that we desire, how it occupies our thoughts, how it occupies our time. And I'm not just talking about persons now, but things. Maybe it's a particular drink. Maybe it's a particular food. Maybe you have a team you root for, and these things occupy your time because all you do is desire them. The challenge before us is to replace whatever that one thing is with who but God. And this, yes, is a great challenge, but a challenge nonetheless. So this first principle of desire Is the primal gesture to the light of Christ that has reached our eyes, the original gesture towards God. It is the consequence of our consciousness being in need of redemption on one hand and the comprehension of being called by Christ on the other. My dear friends, it is always to remember that there is a gap between the person we are and the person we ought to be, and it is in this constant process of becoming that person we ought to be that our transformation never ceases. If mercy is the chief expression of God's love, it is to understand that our transformation is about God's mercy as we draw deeper into that love. And of course, this is a great mystery, but a mystery that we are called to inquire about, a mystery that God calls us to seek to understand. Mindful that any theological pursuit is a pursuit that is caught up in faith. What does theology mean? Simply faith seeking understanding. Fides corinth intellectum. And so, we approach this subject matter that we are talking about now in faith, whereby we seek understanding. So, this first principle of desire which can also be called the readiness to change, also speaks to the first beatitude. How? Well, the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, is about the permanent state and condition of our soul. This is why God strategically places that beatitude as what? Well, number one, the first beatitude. Because before we can live any other beatitude, we must first be poor in God just like in the Ten Commandments. Before we can love neighbor as we ought, we must first love God as we ought. In the two great commandments, before we love neighbor just as we would want to be loved, we love God first. We love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. So, the first beatitude is also caught up in this first principle of desire. And again, Something we are made to reflect with as we come to appreciate how God loves us. Okay, so the second attitude of our transformation is something that gets us back into repentance, huh? Contrition. What is contrition? Well, again, to be contrite for your sin, to be sorry for your sin. What is going on here? When our souls meet Christ, the encounter should bear the mark of contrition when our heart is smitten by Christ, we are to echo those words that come to us from Luke chapter 5, verse 8, where Peter says, What? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, Lord. Confrontation of our own selves with God renders us conscious and aware of our own unworthiness and sinfulness. And suddenly, the guilt we incur burns our souls and we reject evil And revert to God. Genuine contrition then leads to what? But genuine resolve. And we know it is genuine because the absence of friction is tangible, right? Have you ever been in a relationship where there's friction there and you can feel it? It's palpable. You know it's real because it's existential. Well, on the flip side, when you have reconciled with that person You know it's real for the same reason. And what is that reason? You can sense it. You can feel it. It's palpable. Interestingly, here, the word resolution comes from the Latin resolutio, which means to loosen. (laughs) I find that fascinating. To loosen. Have you ever come out of the confessional and said to yourself, Gosh, I feel so much lighter? Or maybe you have forgiven someone and out from the whole reconciliation process? You are not only closer with that friend, but you also feel lighter. Yeah, You have an extra kick in your step because you have resolved the difference. You have alleviated that tension, we could say. So, contrition and resolution is very much an important part of uh, what we are talking about here as it relates to our transformation in Christ. Because if there's no contrition and consequently no resolution, then how can we really bring about change in our life? Again, real change is what we are after here, and certainly a point to be had in the light of these letters to the seven churches. And how about the next key principle in our transformation in Christ, but self-knowledge? I certainly have touched upon this from one day to the next over the last week, week and a half if unconditional readiness and contrition constitute the initial steps in our transformation in Christ, then the next decisive step along the road is self-knowledge, which is always accompanied with truthfulness. Truthfulness is foundational to the interior life and transformation in Christ because it is recognizing who we are for exactly that and nothing more who we are as created in the image and likeness of God. This must be present if God is going to transform our hearts. And certainly, this goes back to recognizing our sin for what it is. Sin. It was St. John Paul II who once said that an excuse is worse than a lie because it is a lie guarded. The more we excuse the lie, the greater the task is to protect the false self, right? Now, the virtue of humility instructs us here because the humble person never judges himself to be smaller or larger than he really is. The humble person is not troubled by self-interest. The humble person is not troubled by reputation, and for that matter, even failure. Humility is the mother and fountainhead of all human virtues, because it truly does set us free. So we avoid the false self by being humble and honest with ourselves, and in so doing, increase in our knowledge of those areas in our life, those faults in our life that are holding us back and experiencing the superabundance of God's joy, God's merciful embrace. And we should be also aware of the role that our mind has in our conversion. Remember that the word metanoia probably best translates as a change of mind, a new way of thinking that leads to a new way of acting. So our volitional acts, our acts of the will, are conditioned to our cognitive apprehension. So the uprooting of our vices requires a thorough knowledge of our defects. Essentially, being equipped with an interior knowledge of our faults helps us to do what? Well, transform our lives concretely. So fruitful self-knowledge has us confronting God and in turn allows God to challenge us in the spiritual life. I often go back to my days in high school when I was competing in different sports, especially in basketball. On more than one occasion, my coach would pull me aside and and he would let me know to work on certain things. I remember on one particular occasion him pulling me aside and telling me that I would be better on the offensive side if I learned to dribble with my off hand. I'm right-handed, so it was to to go to my left side and dribble with my left hand. I had a weak left hand dribble. Now, if I'm going to be honest with you, speaking of honesty, right, (laughs) I didn't get along with my coach. So I kind of resisted that. Well, when it was game time and I had to go to my left, it was an awkward thing for me. And I was not as good of a player as I could have been, certainly if I listened to him, right? Well, I went home and worked on my left hand dribble. And so the next game, when it was time for me to go to my left, I was able to go to my left and be effective, get to the basket, score points, okay? It was only until I worked on what I needed to work on that I became the best basketball player that I could possibly be. And it is the same in the spiritual life. And I should add something here. This is why it is important to have A spiritual director, a mentor, someone you can go to who might help you identify those things that will help you be the person that God is calling you to be. We can put it another way life is but a chipping away where God creates his masterpiece, is it not? And we are that masterpiece. You see, holiness is like a sculpture. Leonardo da Vinci once defined sculpture as the art of removing. It's interesting. All the other arts consist in adding something, right? We add color to canvas in painting. We add stone to stone in architecture. We add note after note in music. Only sculpture consists of removing, of taking away the pieces of marble that are in excess so that the figure can what? Emerge that one has in mind. Christian perfection is also obtained like this by removing and making useless pieces fall off, namely unholy desires, unholy ambitions, unholy projects, and unholy tendencies that in the end only disperse us. There is a great story that comes to us from the life of Michelangelo where one day walking through a garden in Florence, he saw a block of marble in a corner protruding from the earth, half covered by grass and mud. He stopped suddenly as if he had seen someone, and turning to his friends who were with him, he exclaimed, an angel is imprisoned in that marble. I must get him out, and armed with a chisel, he began to work on that block until the figure of a beautiful angel emerged. My dear friends, God also looks at us and sees us this way, as shapeless blocks of stone. He then says to himself, therein is hidden a new and beautiful creature that waits to come out, that waits to come out to the light. More than that, the image of my own son, Jesus Christ, is hidden there, and I want to bring him out. You see, this is what the spiritual life is all about. And this is, again, what we are made to reflect into as we kind of look back into what lies underneath these letters to the seven churches. Now, as we wrap up our thoughts here in these three great principles of of desire or readiness, contrition, repentance, and lastly, self-knowledge, we should say something about asking for forgiveness. Because we must explicitly ask forgiveness from God and unless it would cause us more harm than good from the person whom we have wronged. It is best to do this simply and straightforwardly. I was wrong for doing what I did. Will you forgive me? This is so much better than a vague I'm sorry. As important as those words are, and you've heard me say that these words are very important, it is more important to be specific, and yet at the same time, simple. Far too often, our apologies get elaborate, and they're not specific, they're not detailed, they're not concrete, and the person who is receiving the apology might not always receive it as sincere or genuine. Just be simple and straightforward. What's more, wild is appropriate to pray for God's forgiveness as soon as we become aware of our fault. It is also important to be sure that we confess our sin in the sacrament of reconciliation as soon as possible. And we can talk about these principles all day long, but if we don't put them in the proper sacramental context, then they don't have all of the life giving power they are intended to have. And even in these seven letters to the seven churches, as we've already talked about the importance of the Eucharist, it's sacramental context. We gain a deeper understanding of why the sacraments are so important. Because what did he say? I come into him, right? I come into him. So, my dear friends, these seven letters have had us looking at not only some important historical data and historical information, but also spiritual application, practical application, that we might see these letters to the seven churches as not something in in the mere abstract, but something real, something concrete, something that we can touch. Lessons to be learned, certainly from each and every letter. Now, looking forward, we are going to get into, oh, let's see here, the seven seals. And the seven seals, I think, come to us over the course of the next three chapters. So, our study Is going to move from a treatment of the letters to the seven churches to the seven seals to the seven seals we will have an opportunity to come up to heaven as John would put it that great passage that comes to us from Revelation chapter 4 verse 1 after this I looked and lo, in heaven an open door and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said come up hither and I will show you what must take place after this and so with the words come up hither john is taken up to heaven we will sit next to john and see what he sees in heaven john has now moved from seeing what is that is the situation of the seven churches to what will take place hereafter the future events that will lead up to the fall of the harlot city spoken in revelation chapter 1 verse 19 so we have the opportunity To see what is inside of heaven, right? And you know what I'm talking about if you've already been with me in the first, what, eight, nine programs, because we have talked about how the liturgy itself is what comes down from heaven to earth, and that we get a foretaste of what heaven is all about in the Mass, in the liturgy, as the Book of Revelation explicates so beautifully. Okay, Um, with that, I am looking up at the clock, and we are out of time. Again, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, hopes, dreams, flying accusations, don't hesitate to send me an email at jholljmj at yahoo.com, or you can always go to my website at joeholcraft.org, that's j-o-e-h-o-l-l-c-r-a-f-t.org. If you have anything on your mind, it just doesn't have to be about the book of Revelation, please do not uh, hesitate to send a message my way. And I also want to say this, you know, there have been a stream of questions that have been coming in, and as I've been responding to those questions, I have more or less been saying, uh, wait until chapter 5, or wait until chapter 9, or wait until chapter 13, so I do appreciate your patience, because as it is typical, the best way to answer some of your questions is to put them in the context that they are already in, and so to explore your question within the context of just not the series of verses or subheadings but the larger chapter and book as a whole i think we can better get at responding to your question so i know i've already been able to respond to some of your questions certainly i know there was a question about the keys and uh, that question has been responded to there were some questions about the significance of the geography we talked about that so responding to your questions Within the stream of the context of what we are talking about, um, we have been able to do. And if there is a specific question that I feel maybe we can just respond specifically to, I will do that and I will certainly bring that on air. But up to this point, many of your questions have been about what we have already talked about or what we are going to talk about. So hopefully, we are uh, responding to your questions as needed. All right, with that, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.